I'm going to ask you to use your imagination to travel with me 4,000 years ago. We're going to go to the Middle East. Oh, it is hot. The sun is beating down. It is dusty. There's an old man who's sitting outside of a tent, actually a group of tents, his family, his cattle, his sheep are there. This old man, 99 years old, sitting in the dust, skin wrinkled, dry. Inside the tent is his wife. She's 89, turning 90 soon, also sitting there in the heat, wrinkled skin, tired, thinking about the joys and the hardships of life. And there in that desert land, this old man sits outside of a tent. Three men appear in front of him. Well, this old, weary man, he jumps up. Oh, he runs to these men, and he falls on his face in the dirt, and he bows down to them. And he says, please stop and stay a while. Rest. Let me get water. I want to wash your feet. Let me get a little bit of bread. I'll bring it to you. Oh, these men, they're, they're agreeable to that. They say, yeah, do, do as you've said. We're going to sit under these large oak trees, and we're going to rest here. And this man gets off his knees. He hurries back inside the tent. He, he tells his wife, quickly, quickly, let's get some bread. Prepare some bread. Make it. And he runs out the back of the tent. He goes to his cattle. He searches around. He finds the best calf he can. And he takes it to one of his workers. And he says, kill the calf. Let's make a great meal. I'm going to go inside and make some more food. And he brings out to the men yogurt and milk, this meat prepared and bread. And he sets it before them. He washes their feet. And he stands to listen to what they have to say. This old man is waiting to hear what these three men have come to say to him. And you know what they say? Where's your wife? What an odd question. Why would they show up to this old guy and this old woman in a desert and ask, where is your wife? Who are these guys? What do they want? Now, to me, this sounds like it could be the start of a pretty good movie. But this is actually a Bible story. This is a story we're going to think about today. Because these three men are going to ask to talk to this wife, and they are going to tell her something important. And she is going to laugh at them. But she is going to laugh twice. Over the last year, I have been occasionally preaching out of the Hall of Faith, which is found in Hebrews 11. But we're looking at those characters in their story from the Old Testament. And so today, we're going to look at the story of Sarah and Abraham, but primarily Sarah, in what God has told her. And how she has responded to that. And so I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. This is found on page 12 of the Pew Bible there in front of you if you don't have a Bible. I'd encourage you to turn there. We're going to spend some time in the text, reading the text. It will be really helpful for you to turn there. 
As we look at this text, there is one main idea I want us to walk away with this morning. As we think about what was said by these men and what the response was of this old woman, this is the one idea that we should walk away with this morning. God's promised son turns laughter of disbelief into laughter of joy. God's promised son turns laughter of disbelief into laughter of joy. In our story today, we're going to see two scenes. The first scene is going to be a laughter of disbelief, and the second scene, a laughter of joy. Those are going to be our two main points uh, that we will follow today through this text. We're going to need to look at two different passages, but we're going to start here in Genesis 18. Follow along with me as I read the first 15 verses of Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him, and when he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you've passed your servants anyway. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. And he served them as they ate under the tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. In about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. So we find ourselves with these two old people in the desert, hearing a message from these three strangers who have showed up. And Sarah is responding in a laughter of disbelief. Scene one. All right, it's important for us to know who the characters are. So let's start with these two characters right away, Abraham and Sarah. We've heard quite a bit of them in previous passages in Genesis, of God's work in their lives, of giving them promises. Abraham himself leaving his land and his family to go to an unknown place, to do an unknown thing that God said, I will prosper you, so just go. And Sarah following along, struggling to trust at times. But who are these three messengers? 
Well, it, it helps for us to see how Abraham responds in great honor, bowing down to them, giving the best of what he has and more so. I mean, it's kind of funny that he said, I'll bring you a little bit of bread. And then he brings this massive meal. He, he clearly honors them and respects them. But it's as if he has prior knowledge of, of who these men are. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, that actually Abraham is not unfamiliar with these conversations and this type of circumstance. But I want us to see who exactly these men are. Look at chapter 18, verse 22. All right, so this kind of goes into what happens after our story. But these men, in verse 22, turned from there, the two of them went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Hear the word Yahweh, God himself. And if you look down in chapter 19, verse 1, we see where those two men went and who they are. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. All right, so here we get the description in the context of who these three people are. God himself and two angels. And what is God's message? Oh, he tells Abraham, your wife Sarah, in a year she's going to have a baby. Now, why does Sarah laugh in disbelief? Uh, because, well, they're getting on in years, right? They're old. 89, almost 90, 99. That's quite unbelievable, isn't it? All right, kids, like, let me put this in perspective, all right? If your great-grandparents are still alive, which they might not be, if they had a baby right now, you'd be older than your grandfather, all right, that's impossible, right? That can't happen. No, like, we don't know anyone like that. Sarah laughs. There's no way. We're both way past this age of being able to have children. But how do we know that Sarah's laughter is not just out of amusement of how crazy this sounds, but actually in disbelief that this could even happen? I want to point at a few things that help us here in the text understand her disbelief. All right, let's start in verse 12. She laughs to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? All right, I want us to understand exactly what this statement is saying. She is not saying, will I have the delight of children someday? She is saying, we are worn out and old, and I don't even experience sexual pleasure from my husband, much less having a child right? The two kind of have to go together. She's saying, I don't even get that. There's no way I'm getting a child. I don't even have that delight in life, much less the delight of a child. What a striking response of just sadness and disappointment and struggle in life. She does not have delight. The delight seen in marriage But I think it is interesting to even go on in this story that the way that she responds to the Lord's accusation, where he says, why has Sarah laughed? And in verse 15, she denies it and says, I did not laugh. Why? Because she was afraid. Uh, this is a response you and I are familiar with. 
when we get called out, right? For something that we did wrong and we respond by denying it because we are fearful of the consequences or we are fearful of being seen for who we really are. But I want to dig a little bit deeper, even in the context of this story. What's really interesting is this is not the first time this promise has been made. Abraham himself received this promise. Turn back with me to Genesis 17. And look at verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations, kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed. And said to himself, can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Right here in this context, we see Abraham already heard this message. There is no doubt he has talked to his wife in the days between that message and these strangers showing up to give this message. He has told her, God told me, you're going to have a son and we're going to call him Isaac. There is no doubt that he has delivered this message to his wife. But quickly, I do want us to see how Abraham responds. He laughs as well. And yet, do we understand his laugh to be in disbelief? Now, actually, what I would point us to is the fact that Abraham responded in obedience. Because the context of that promise is God telling Abraham, I want you all as my people to be set apart from the other nations, to have a covenant sign of circumcision, that your people would be different than all the other nations because you are my people. And how do I know that Abraham's laugh was not in disbelief? Not to be crass, but Abraham, a 99-year-old man, believed God and was circumcised. He took God's promise seriously. He took the covenant seriously. And he obeyed God. And so Abraham believes God's promise in chapter 17. And now we find God coming to address Abraham's wife directly because she is in disbelief. And lastly, to point out here, God himself calling out Sarah. In verse 14 of chapter 18, is anything impossible for God? At the appointed time, I will come back, and you will have a son. God himself pointing to Sarah's lack of faith that God can do anything. Is anything impossible for the Lord? I wonder how you and I are responding to God's promises. It's easy for us to sit here and read a story about people 4,000 years ago, and things that seem quite legitimately impossible for God to do. And we can be sympathetic. But we have our own promises to grapple with that God has given to us. We can all relate to the difficulty of a hard story that's really hard to believe. We might have a coworker or a neighbor or family member who might tell us a radical story, and we find those things hard to believe. I, I've stumbled across such a thing recently in the news. I don't know if anyone's like been following this in Las Vegas two months ago. 
something came out of the sky, crashed in somebody's yard. There's this full news report about these large green creature-like men who were walking around. And these two guys saw them, and they were climbing on their excavating equipment and trying to drive it, which to me is just hilarious. Like, that's part of your story. And they tell the news this. They actually call the police, and there's this whole phone call on record of them talking about these aliens. Like, that's kind of a radical story, and I'm not here to convince you about ETs or anything like that. You can make up your own decisions on that. What I find most intriguing is not the story itself, but the source. Because when the news station went back to get further information, guess what? No one's available. No one's willing to make a comment. For two months, they've been unwilling to talk to anyone else about this. Slightly suspect, right? Because part of what I want to point out is, yes, there are stories that are hard to believe, but what really matters is the source that they're coming from. All right, let me make that really practical. I come home from work many days. My youngest is six. He is wonderful at telling stories. He's very excited about things that have happened to him that day. And I hold those stories very lightly <laughs> until they are affirmed by his mother. Because one is a more reliable source than the other. That would be Jen. Jen is the more reliable source, right? <laughs> right, we, we all experience that of, ah, that's, a, that's kind of a wild story, but I don't know if I trust you. You, you maybe haven't been a faithful witness in, in past stories. Friends, when we get to God's promises, not only do we grapple with the sometimes craziness and, and the hard-to-believe part of God's promises. And we should consider the plausibility of the story and the promise, but we have to consider the source of the promise. It is God himself who showed up to Abraham and Sarah and said, I'm going to give you a son. And God forbid that we hear God's promises and say, ah, that's a little too crazy. I don't know if you can do that, God. I don't know if you're actually going to return, if Jesus is ever going to come back, because I've been waiting a long time, and I haven't seen him yet. I don't know if you're actually going to save your people or not, because you said you would, and I'm trying to trust, but I haven't seen that really come through yet. I haven't seen sin really wiped out completely. It's all over the place. I haven't seen the wicked punished yet. God, you promised to do these things, and I haven't seen that. Are you really going to restore creation? Are we really going to see a new heavens and a new earth? My friends, I get that those are difficult things that we have faith and trust in, and yet I want to remind you who is behind those promises, that he will return and that he will punish sin and wickedness, that justice will be served and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a kingdom established that we will reign with him in. God of the universe has promised that. We consider the source of the promise. And instead of laughing in disbelief, we wait in faith and in hope. But I want to 
maybe narrow this in a little bit because perhaps there are things in your life that you are saying, God, I am still waiting for you to fulfill. And what I want to ask you is, are the things that you're waiting for actually God's promises or your desires of what you want God to do? Because there is a difference. There's a difference between waiting on promises that God has made and has not fulfilled yet, and we wait in hopefulness, we look back to Scripture and say, God, you have said these things and we will wait for this to happen. And there's the reality of barrenness, of the lack of success, the lack of wealth, the desire for physical healing, or even the salvation of a loved one. That we wait on the Lord for those things that we desire most of. God, give us children. Give me success in the workplace that I would just have a job that I can keep. That you would save the one that I love dearly. That you would give me and my loved ones physical health so we can continue on with life. Those are good things to desire. And yet God did not promise any of those for us. Not to fullest completion. We await the coming kingdom when all will be made right. And so we keep praying and we ask the Lord to fulfill the desires that are in our own hearts. But friends, we have to be careful that we don't put those desires above what God has actually promised us. He has promised life in his son. He has promised life eternal. He has promised goodness for those who love him. But you and I don't always get to define what that looks like. We are dependent on his work. God has not guaranteed these types of things for us. And so don't set wrong expectations on God as if he has to conform to the things you long for most in this life. No, instead we submit our desires to God's plan. And his promises. Dads, let me talk to you specifically here on Father's Day. I wonder what example you're living out to your families about the promises God has given to you. We should be ones who are teaching our children, our families, to find our our hope in the promises that God has made us in his word. Of spiritual strength and sustenance, of a hope for future kingdom, of the promise of his Holy Spirit working in us, that we would point our families back to the word of God to say, hope in these things. Rather than living out the frustrations of this life that we're hoping in finding success in our career or our hobby or joy in this life alone. May God give us the grace to set those things aside and point our families to hope in the one who can actually satisfy and accomplish what he has promised to do. Are you committed to being an example to your family this week to show them what does it look like to have faith in the promises of God in his word? Now, I understand we face difficulty in this life, and we should mourn and be sorrowful and weep over the brokenness of this world. But we can weep and mourn and be sorrowful in the hard moments of life as we find hope in the promises of God. 
And so be hopeful for what God can do. We can't guarantee that God will work in the exact ways that we would like him to, but we can live out recognizing that he can accomplish anything. And so this is the challenge that is given to Sarah. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Oh, and her response should be, no, there is nothing that is impossible for my God. But instead, her response was to laugh and to deny it and to be afraid. What is your response when confronted with the power of God? When confronted with Perhaps failure in your own heart to trust in him as you should. Sarah did not receive God's rebuke well. She lied and defended herself in fear. Oh, that we would be confronted in our own hearts the word of God and respond in humility, in repentance, to turn back to God to say, God, no, I don't want to be fearful. I don't want to lack in my faith of what you can accomplish. And so to give ourselves to the Lord to say, God, work in me to strengthen my confession of faith and trust in you. But what if that comes from a friend, a fellow Christian who confronts our sin? How might we respond to them? Oh, that we would also respond in humility and ask them to hold us accountable. I wonder for you this week, would you be willing to ask somebody to hold you accountable to an area of your life where you struggle with your faith? To be honest, to say this is a difficult part of my trust in the Lord's promises. Would you keep me accountable? Would you ask me where my faith is? I don't think we often ask people to hold us accountable to those things. We'd rather hide it. No, we need accountability for our own hearts before the Lord that our faith would be found in him, in his promises, and trust what he has promised to do in our lives. Trust that he is a good and faithful father. And so Sarah laughs in disbelief at this promise of a son. But you know what? That didn't change what God was going to do. That didn't mean that God couldn't or would not still accomplish what he promised to do. And so we move from scene one to scene two to think about how Sarah's laughter has changed from disbelief to joy. And I'm very going to quickly show you the text in between. From this scene one, Abraham talks to God about these terrible cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and God wipes out these cities and yet saves some of Abraham's family from that destruction. And yet, out of those wicked cities, and even though there's destruction and the family is saved, there are corrupt nations born anew with Moab and Ammon. And we could question, what is, what is happening with evil continuing to prosper, even in the destruction of two cities, is more evil being born. And then in chapter 20, we find out Abraham, again, is not telling the truth about his wife, and there's a king who takes Sarah because he thinks that's Abraham's sister. And now we're wondering, what is happening with God's promise? Is he actually going to do what he said he was going to do? Will this son ever show up now that this family is being broken apart, and yet God preserves Adam 
or Abraham and Sarah from Abimelech. And the family is kept together. And our hope is renewed as we get to chapter 21. Scene two, laughter of joy. Follow along with me as I read the first seven verses of Genesis 21. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. Here I want us to see the emphasis right away in verse 1 that God, it is repeated, God showed up when he said he was going to show up, and he did what he said he was going to do. God was faithful to his promise. Though it seemed impossible, the timing and the place and the people involved, God accomplished what he said he was going to accomplish. And we see the response of joy and excitement. Notice quickly again Abraham's obedience. That he names Isaac what God told him to name him. And interestingly enough, Isaac's name means he laughs. A bit of a play on the circumstances in which this promise came. And so Abraham obeys God and names his son Isaac. And he obeys God and performs this circumcision to identify Isaac with God's people. And so we see quickly that Abraham obeys God in the midst of this promise. Should that not be the same for us that God's promises fulfilled that we see throughout Scripture would prompt us to respond in obedience, to respond in joyful obedience? As we study all of the works that the Lord has accomplished in the lives of his people, would it not compel us to obey God and to say, I want to serve God faithfully, to obey him and do that joyfully rather than begrudgingly? it's easy for us to go to God's Word and see commands and instruction that we should obey Him, we should love others, we should love Him, and at times those might be hard or just done out of routine, and yet here is a good reminder. If God is the one who fulfills His promises, should we not respond in joyful obedience because we trust this faithful God? And so we are joyful in serving the Lord rather than doing it begrudgingly. But I want us to really settle in on Sarah's response. She laughs. Ah, but this is no longer a laugh of disbelief, of distrusting God's promise. This is a laugh in faith and in joy, because God has done what he said he would do. She now takes great delight in God's impossible promise because she sees its fulfillment. And also recognize that Sarah expects that her laughter will cause other people to laugh as well. 
that they would take great joy in what God has accomplished. This is not just for her alone. It is for all those that she would tell. That they would say, oh my goodness, a 90-year-old woman gave birth to a child. How? And she would say, God. The Lord himself has done what he promised. And so through God's gift of a promised son, we see Sarah's laughter turning from disbelief to joy. She now takes great joy in this gift that has been given to her, and her demeanor, her trust in God has changed. She sees the beauty of the impossible work of God fulfilled. And so I wonder how God's promise of a son has changed your life. I expect that some of you here might be asking yourself, why on earth, Mark, should I care about some baby born to two really old people in a desert 4,000 years ago? I do not know Isaac. I do not care about Isaac. It's because this story points us to another story. And I want you, again, to imagine with me. As we look at these old people 4,000 years ago rejoicing, Maybe jumping around. I don't know if they could jump. They're kind of old, but these people are excited. They're happy about what has happened. And yet there was a promised son that they were still waiting for because it had been promised to their forefathers, to Adam and to Eve, a son who would be a deliverer. And so from 4,000 years ago, we fast forward 2,000 years ago to a young woman in a small town in Israel. And an angel visits her. I mean, let alone an angel showing up, but an angel visits her. Says, Mary, I get it. You're a virgin. You're not married. You've never known a man. You're going to have a baby. I mean, you want to talk about impossible? Right? Like, we could argue 90 and 99 getting together and having a baby. That's pretty crazy. But, like... Not having a husband and not having sexual relations with anyone, that's impossible. Oh, but the angel said even more than that, saying, you're not just going to have a baby. You're going to have the baby, the Son of God, who is the Messiah, Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. You're going to birth him into this world. I mean, you want to talk about impossible. That is impossible, except for God. Except it is not impossible for God. And this baby that was promised centuries earlier and promised to Mary was born. Trent read this passage for us earlier in the service of Jesus promised to Mary. And he was who God said he was going to be. The son of man who lived a perfect life, who did what no man before him could accomplish, not just in living a perfect life, but actually dying on the cross. He won salvation. You want something to joyfully laugh about, God's promise? Jesus Christ won salvation for you and for me. He promised to go to the cross, and he did. He promised to die for our sins, and he did it. He promised to raise from the grave three days later, and he did it. 
He promised to ascend to the heavens, to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, and he did it, and he's there. He promised to give us the Holy Spirit, and he has done it. Friends, this is the promise that we take great hope in, we take joy in, and it changes every day of our lives. It gives us hope beyond any other hope of success, of joy, of satisfaction in this life, because Jesus accomplished the promises of God. Friend, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, oh, I want to encourage you, today is the day to put your faith in him. He calls us to repent of our sin, to trust in his salvation, to find our hope and our joy in him and not in this life, and not trying to keep salvation or keep works in front of us as if that will earn us our salvation. No, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gives us great joy and we rejoice in him and we want to encourage you to do the same. Put your faith in him. It will change your life. And so if you have never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, please talk to somebody today. Come talk to me. I'll stand down here after the service. You can talk to somebody you came with. Let us know how we can tell you more about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. The promises fulfilled for us and the promises yet to come of a future kingdom of living with him for eternity. Today is the day of salvation and you will never laugh with greater joy in your life than when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Oh, but dear brother and sister, Have you forgotten this joy? Has it grown stale? Or tiresome? Oh, we hear the gospel every week. We hear about Jesus. Have you forgotten this? I would encourage you to get back into God's word and read about what the Lord has done for you. Titus 3, 4, and 7 should well up our souls when Paul wrote, When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration, the renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. That is the message of the gospel that we rejoice in. And so we turn our affections to the Lord. We read books that turn our affections to the Lord. Yes, the Bible, but reading books like Rejoicing in Christ, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, Religious Affections, books that would turn our hearts to him, even in the midst of a weary and tiresome world where we might struggle, we face frustrations, we go back to God's word. We go back to faithful texts that were written about God and who he is and what he has done for us. And so how do you joyfully respond to God's promised son? Let me give you three simple ways this week, all right? One, tell other people, all right? Tell other people about Jesus and what he's done. This is rehearsing the gospel with others. I'd encourage you, think about one person this week. And I'll even add in 
Christian or non-Christian, one person this week that you're going to tell the gospel to, you're going to rehearse the gospel to, because it has changed your life. Laugh with them in the joy of God's promise fulfilled. Laugh with them of the joy, the promise that God still has yet to complete. The day in which we will join with him in heaven. Oh, we go and tell other people the joy of the gospel because it wells up inside of us. There is no more important message, no more joyful message that I could tell anyone. Is that in you? Is that spark there, that encouragement to go and tell other people the joy of the gospel? Second way to respond joyfully to the gospel. Sing it. Sing the gospel. Right? This is rehearsing the gospel out loud. Now, I get it. Some of you are like, brother, you not want to hear me sing. Okay? No, I do. I, I don't care how tone deaf you are. I want to hear your heart well up in joy to shout the praises of God. Do that with music. As you listen to God-centered music, as you listen to music about the gospel, as we join together here to sing, as we find other opportunities to sing together, do that. Be purposeful in how you sing and what you sing. The scripture is filled with songs that Christians should be singing on a regular basis. Sing to God. Let your joy be known and be heard. Third, we can joyfully respond to the gospel by talking to God himself. That we would rehearse the gospel in prayer. When we find those difficult and hard days, we're just grappling to figure out, how do I get through? Oh, that we would go to God in prayer, delighting in our conversation with him. That we are joyful that he is our God. That he has promised to us life eternal. And so we would entrust ourselves to him in great joy. Oh, that we would express joy in prayer to God and rejoice. There are prayers all throughout Scripture of joy about God as King and ruler, as Savior, as the one who is at work on our behalf in us and through us. And so we should enjoy praying and setting aside time to talk to God. Do we not love the times that we find those in our lives that we love talking to? Aren't those joyful moments when we get to talk to our best friend? Talk to God about that in the same way that you are joyful in your prayer to rejoice and to praise him, to not always be bringing my needs, but to accompany those needs with joy and exaltation in who God is and what he has done. Oh, that our souls would well up in our affections for God because we are reminded of the gospel and of the promises that he has made. And so let the joy of the Lord fill your heart because you dwell on him in what he has done. When we're tempted to doubt God's promises, be frustrated about my circumstances in life, remember these two old wrinkly people sitting in the desert. They were given a promise that seemed absolutely impossible. They were told they were going to have a baby. And God reminded them, nothing is impossible. 
Not with me. And so we take his promises as they are true and good for us, to sustain us in this life, to strengthen us for all that God has called us to, that our hope and our joy would be found in him. And we remember the virgin in Israel who has made the impossible promise, and God fulfilled that by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would take those doubts and submit them to our faith and our trust in the Lord's promises. And they will turn from doubts to shouts of joy. Joy that informs our most difficult days. Because God's promised son turns our laughter of disbelief into laughter of joy. Would you join me in prayer? God, we come before you with hearts raised up in happiness and joy because you have given us your son, Jesus Christ. You have given us hope in the gospel. There is good news for all. And so, Lord, we rejoice and we ask that you would sustain that joy in our hearts as we go into this week. That we would be reminded of your goodness and your grace. We would be reminded of your faithfulness to fulfill the promises you've given to us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will accomplish the good work that you have begun. And so, Lord, we look forward to the day that we are with your Son, Jesus Christ, rejoicing before your throne. Lord, allow us to experience a measure of that joy and rejoicing today as we remember what you have promised to do for us and have already done for us in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. May the joy of the Lord be in our hearts this week as we go back to our lives, right? We're back into the workplace. We're back into family life. And we look for God's joy through his promises in our own hearts. Remember, we don't have an evening service tonight. We trust we'll see you throughout the week and again next Sunday. And now hear this blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.